HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Seersucker, located at 329 Smith Street in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Check out their new restaurant, Nightingale 9, opening today. For more information, visit www.seersuckerbrooklyn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, welcome to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. As always, we're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful and today sunny Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are thrilled to be joined uh, on the phone today by Farmer Jones from the Chef's Garden. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it, it's really exciting for us to have you have you on the program today. I know that you're the, the go-to source for so many amazing chefs across the country, but I thought we would start the interview today by getting a little bit of information on, on how you guys started uh, producing for chefs for folks who might not be interested with, with the chef's garden. Well, really desperation. Uh, we were farming chemically, commercially, and ultimately could not sustain ourselves as a, a family farm back in the 80s with interest rates at 21%, and we had a devastating hailstorm, and it wiped out the crops, and ultimately we could not sustain under that, that type of an operation. And we met a chef who had had European influence, and she was looking for quality ingredients that she couldn't find here in the United States, and it really gave us hope as a small family farm that there was um, there was a life for for small farms and for an existence for us and we started growing for her she wanted varieties that were grown for the flavor so you know we did a lot of research on heirloom varieties she wanted product grown without chemical grown the right way and it really was you know a path that we pursued very eagerly and um, jumped in and learned, and we had some amazing mentors, several of which came right there from, you know, in New York City. Now, you guys are, are, are operating not far from the shores of Lake Erie. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're located and kind of the, the kind of size and scope of the farm? 
Well, you know, we're in an amazing microclimate. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. And we're 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie. And it provides us with an exceptional growing environment that's unlike really any other in the world. It gives us a growing condition similar to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, the soils that we're on are all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago. I wasn't here for that. <laughs> uh, but um, it's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. In fact, we're right near a little town called Milan, Ohio. The outer towners pronounce it Milan. Yes. <laughs> but uh, it was known for Thomas Edison's birthplace. But because of all of the produce and all the grain that was produced in this microclimate, um, we had the second largest shipping port in the world right here in a little village of Milan, Ohio, for about 15 years. And um, at one point, our, our county hosted the largest concentration of vegetable growers of any county anywhere in the world, then peaked with over 330 vegetable growers. Unfortunately, there's about six left today. Wow. So, you know, one by one, the small family farms were pushed out because it all all became about, you know, large-scale farming and uh, the tons per acre. And, you know, really, for us, it's been about chefs. We exist because there were, you know, early on, there were this handful of chefs that were looking for quality, flavorful ingredients, and they've allowed us an existence, and I think many other small farms owe their existence as well to, you know, really, I think the awareness that chefs were allowed and I think really thrived on on bringing making people aware that they did have a choice out there. So I'm curious, you know, back when you were in the transition period, I mean, obviously, when you're when you're going from producing in a more conventional operation to looking at uh, transitioning to specialty produce, there's uh, a learning curve and also, um, you know, for you and then also, I think, probably a learning curve. Uh, for the land, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how how you made some choices in, in those early transition days about kind of what to grow and how quickly to, to change uh, different parts of your operation. Well, it was an abrupt change. I mean, we didn't have any choice. We were forced out, and, you know, just pure desperation to be able to survive in agriculture. Um, we knew that with no no land to speak of, no capital, no one willing to loan us any that we had to make a very desperate and aggressive change. And, you know, here were these chefs saying, look, it's not about the tons per acre. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality and the integrity of the product. And no doubt, you're, Aaron, you're exactly right. The learning curve was huge because the university, you know, taught us, you know, they would give you a textbook and show you the picture of a healthy cabbage. Then the, other, the next page would show you a picture of a diseased cabbage. And if it has this disease, here's the chemical you use to get rid of it. It's very much like our Western culture of medicine, constantly treating the symptom. You get a sore throat or a strep throat, you take a moxicillin or a penicillin or a you know, viacillin or something, always treating the symptom. And really where some of our, our best information came from was old agricultural books going back pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer, um, agricultural books that are 100, 150, 200 years old. What they were doing then was really amazing without the chemical. 
my dad has a saying that, you know, that we have to get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. In a lot of ways, that's kind of true. Obviously, we're trying to tie technology to that today that wasn't available then. But it's about, you know, really going back to the basics and allowing the land to sit fallow and to rebuild those nutrients naturally rather than chemically. Uh, It's very, very exciting and rewarding to see that if you work in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it, the rewards can be amazing. Um, you know, we'll actually test the soil, find out what it's deficient in, and then plant crop specific. We may plant buckwheat or rye or vetch or clover or even mint or basil. And those plants act as a receptacle or an antenna, if you will, and they accept each one of those different types of plants will accept different types of energy from the sun. So they accept it from the sun into the plant, down through the root, and make it available in the soil for future crops. So then when we plant our peas or our carrots or our beets or our turnips or radishes and plant those to harvest to consume, all the natural nutrients are there to help us defend against the diseases. And we really kind of look at the way we farm today as more like Eastern culture of getting the body in balance to defend against the diseases rather than trying to um, defend against them after you have them. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, I know, um, you know, we've been we've been talking about the Cleveland area here a lot at the studio. We're big fans of of Chef Sawyer, and I've been hearing a lot of buzz about the emerging kind of restaurant scene in that area. But when you guys were getting started, I mean, how did you how did you make the first connections with chefs to grow for 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 them? Like, how did the word eventually start to to spread? Because you guys send stuff um, across the country, right? We do, and you know, the reality is is that farms are in rural areas, and um, you know, there wasn't enough business locally for us to be able to sustain ourselves on. Um, the Cleveland market certainly supported us, but going back 30 years ago, there were a handful that really, um, I guess, understood what we were trying to do and encouraged us to do what we were doing. But it did start in Cleveland with a European-influenced chef and other other chefs picked up on it and you know we had to really seek out chefs wherever they were that understood what we were trying to do to be able to give us enough business to support it and of course we're reading about you know chefs in in New York and Chicago and in different big cities and there was an interest and a demand for that product and it allowed us to be able to survive and sustain ourselves early on can you tell me, like, what were some of the, the first crops that you were getting asked for um, that, that people were having trouble finding in other places? Well, you know, um, we had traditionally grown zucchini squash commercially, sold it by the truckloads. And you let it get about as long as your hand and about an inch and a half to two inches in diameter, and you pack 20 pounds to a case and we were we were pretty good zucchini squash growers, but this uh, executive chef, her name was Iris Balin, trained in Europe, was in Cleveland at a farmer's market, and she wanted a squash blossom. Now, you know, you can go to any number of farmer's markets today and find a half a dozen farmers that are growing squash blossoms, but 30 years ago, we really wondered what in the world this lady was smoking <laughs> and because uh, we just had never heard of anything well it's really a uh, it came from dishes that were used hundreds or thousands of years ago and uh, 
I picked the first ones and brought them in kind of sheepishly. And she just went crazy over these. And she's like, oh, my God, I haven't seen anything like this since I was in France. Do you realize what you have here? And she showed another chef, and, and she showed another chef. And so chefs started coming down to farmer's markets. And so the squash blossom was one of the very first ones. And then, then they were asking for lettuces that were four to five inches tall rather than the Really, back then, it was iceberg and romaine were the two main lettuces. And looking for the red oaks and the lelarosos and the cybels and the speckles and some of those amazing varieties that we've all come to know today that were really unheard of in the United States 30 years ago. That's exciting. Where did you guys find them? You know, there's a great place called Seed Savers Exchange. It's a not-for-profit. We have nothing to gain personally by by mentioning them, but um, Dr. Kent Waitley out in Decorah, Iowa, has done more to preserve old heirloom seeds than anybody we know. And anyone can become a member of it and support their work. And they do an amazing job at preserving old heirlooms. And um, we sent my dad out in an old car with 300,000 miles on it, and he took a sleeping bag and a tent because it's all we could afford. And we we packed him and sent him out, and he looked and explored all these different varieties, and we brought them back and started growing them. And, and really, the chefs have driven what we grow. And we may have done a 100 different varieties of lettuce to find a dozen that were the ones that the chefs really were jazzed by. And, and the same with tomatoes. I remember one year we did over 100 varieties of garlic. One year we did over 100 varieties of eggplant. And we would encourage that, you know, symbiotic relationship where chefs could come onto the farm and we would learn from each other. And, you know, the chef equals one and the farmer equals one. The chef and farmer working together, we magnified into the power of six. So we've really thrived from working together with chefs over the years. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, as you're in the early stages kind of experimenting with different varietals or even today if someone's looking for you guys to, to grow a specific crop, are you guys shouldering, you know, kind of all the risk on that production? Um, you know, I know like for a CSA model that, that there's a, a sharing of the risk between the, the producer and the consumer. Um, but is it similar for, for your operation when you're looking at, at you know, producing kind of new, new crops or new um, types of, of vegetables for the farm? No. And, you know, early on, the chefs were totally driving what new crops um, we were introduced to. And once they taught us, we, we got it and we got onto it, and we really aggressively look for new products. Um, and I say new tongue-in-cheek because we're adamantly opposed to the GMOs, the bioengineering that's going on. When I say new, many, in many cases, they're old varieties that commercial growers may have abandoned because they didn't have enough yield or they didn't have enough disease resistance, and we reintroduce those to chefs. And so at this point, in any one year, we may introduce 150 to 200 new products. Uh, but we pretty much shoulder that. It's just kind of a part of what we do. We we actually build a facility here on the farm with the help of chefs called the Culinary Vegetable Institute, where chefs can actually come, and we've got a, a state-of-the-art kitchen on the farm. And when we grow these trial varieties, then chefs can come, stay right on the farm, and play with them and experiment, and then give us some 
feedback and indicator whether or not it's something that they would be interested in. So out of 150, if we end up with 25 or 30 that the chefs are really jazzed by, we think it's been a great year. Nice. Well, we are going to move. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I'm interested in, in learning more about how you kind of package your, your precious goods to be shipped across the country. But I'm going to ask our listeners to hold tight while we, we take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Onions Milk by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Nightingale 9, the latest venture from Chef Rob Newton and partner Kerry Diamond of Seersucker and Smith Canteen, will open its doors on February 21st, 2013. The restaurant, named for Nightingale 9, an old Brooklyn phone exchange, will feature Newton's interpretations of Vietnamese classics and street food, applying the same sourcing and quality standards he has in place at his other restaurants. Inspired by Robert's travels, the menu will feature a variety of rice noodle soups such as Berkshire pork with country ham, cracklins, lemongrass, and anato. Newton especially loves the Vietnamese tradition of customizing one's food and allowing the diner to determine how spicy his or her dishes are. As a result, diners will be encouraged to use various dipping sauces, hot sauces, and herbs, all important components of the meal. Nightingale 9 is located at 345 Smith Street in Brooklyn and will be open for dinner on weekdays from 6 to 10 p.m., closed on Wednesdays, and from 6 to 11 p.m. on weekends. Lunch service will begin in the near future. For more information about the team behind Nightingale 9, visit SearsuckerBrooklyn.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and we are on the line with Chef Jones of the Chef's Garden. So before the break, we were kind of talking into some of the, the different crops that you're producing, and you guys ship across the country, and I'm wondering... You know, how did you go about finding, you know, packaging and, and coolants and materials for getting your, your goods to the chef in prime condition? You know, my dad has another saying that we have to continue to make mistakes at a faster rate than the competition. <laughs> and uh, we do mistakes well out here. I mean, everything is a trial and error. Um, we had never dreamed of, of shipping the product. Um, we were working with a Ritz-Carlton chef in Cleveland. And uh, he really took the Ritz-Carlton's, you know, took us under their wing, and uh, we had a great relationship for five years, and we got a phone call from the chef that he was being transferred to Arizona. And we shook hands and parted company and figured we'd get a postcard once a year, and that was going to be the end of it. And about six weeks after he was out there, he said, you know, you guys really spoiled me when I was in Cleveland. You need to figure out how to get this to me. 
and we just thought that he was crazy. And the first time we tried it, we shipped it on Greyhound, and of course it arrived about uh, <laughs> seven days later, and he's like, Farmer, what are you doing to me? This stuff's dripping out the bottom of the box. And, you know, and ultimately uh, we evolved to, you know, overnight FedEx, and, you know, looked and trialed, and we've gone through the, the liner that we use today really helps hold temperature, and I think we've probably gone through 34 or 36 different liners over the course of years, and it continues to evolve as technology does. And, you know, you just look for ways that you can, it's all for us, look at, we're a small family farm. The only way that we survive is to, to really have better flavor to grow a better flavored product and to have a, a something that's got food safety as the number one priority and to get that to them in a consistent quality fashion that allows them to differentiate what they're doing from everybody else. Now, you guys are currently in the midst of your spring planting. So what what does that kind of look like on the farm? What are you working on? We were just talking with um, Ben Flanner, who runs one of the, the urban farms here in New York City, and he said he was just starting to, to put his onions uh, into seed. Is it similar similar on your end, or what does the kind of spring season look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are very similar to New York. Um Obviously, you're always trying to, to extend the season. You're either trying to get things started early or you're trying to extend that season on the tail end. And, you know, one of the hottest, coolest things right now is cold frames. It's something we've been using for about 20 years. Uh, but in essence, you're capturing the solar energy from the sun. Uh, it's about 19 degrees outside today, but in the cold frames, we've got about 52 degrees. So we're harvesting actually some wintered over spinach that we planted in the fall, and then we'll put the cold frames over that. And so uh, we're harvesting some some winter spinach right now that is unbelievable. If you can imagine, this is thawed and frozen and thawed and frozen. You can't harvest it frozen, but you allow it to thaw on its own. And we use a refractometer to test the sugar levels. The spinach right now is actually testing sweeter than a red delicious apple. Wow. So we're, we're starting to put some, uh, some lettuce plants in the cold frames and radishes and some of the early things. We've actually started putting some peas in just to get some early crops out of the cold frames, things that will really tolerate the cooler temperatures. And I think certainly the listeners could experiment and play with cold frames in their backyards. And I think that it's really rewarding. It's something where you could actually produce something year-round. What is it? You guys have, I saw on, on, on your website, an eight-stage growth chart. Can you tell me about that? What is it? The eight, eight, an eight-stage growth chart. Oh, okay, sure. You know, again, chefs have really been our mentors over the years and have allowed our existence. And what we've learned from chefs is that at every single stage of a plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. You know, we used to think that, and I'm sure that, you know, if the listeners have had their own gardens, you're in Memorial Day weekend and you, you snuck some early radishes in, but all of a sudden you got unprecedented 80 or 90 degree temperatures and it, and it bolted the radishes or forced them to go to seed. We always felt if something went to seed before we got it to market that we had failed. And we actually had a chef and uh, we were going back to look at this field 
and the whole thing had bolted over the weekend, and my brother was out plowing it under, and the chef literally jumped out of the pickup truck, ran out in front of my brother with the tractor, stopped him, and said, why is he plowing this under? Don't you realize what I can do with this? And he started eating the radish blossoms, and it really started to open our eyes to looking at plants in different ways than we'd ever considered before. Uh, Grant Ackett's at Alinea, uh, Curtis Duffy, um, Daniel Hume at 11 Madison Park, uh, Thomas Keller, per se. Those folks all have really embraced that concept and encouraged us to look at the plants in different ways than, than we've ever considered them before. And so the eight stages were really developed so that we had continuity, regardless of where a chef was or where they were cooking. Uh, you know, these chefs are invited to, to travel and to cook all over the world, and so they want that consistency uh, and in the look and in the taste and texture. So we had to form some, some way to be able to communicate what stage. So we go from a cotyledon to a micro to a petite to an ultra to a baby to a, a young um, and a flowering and a seeded stage. So a bok choy you could buy at actually eight different stages of growth from us. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, you know, one of the speak you, you you dropped the names of some amazing chefs across the country, and and we talk a lot about this culture of of celebrity chefs here on the network. But I think in a lot of ways, you're one of the few um, farmers, the few producers I'm aware of, who's also kind of attaining a little bit of that celebrity status now. You've been a judge a couple of times for Iron Chef America, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about those experiences. Well, I'm no celebrity. I, I have just had the very, very good fortune of getting to work with some really amazing chefs. And our family is just so indebted to the culinary industry for allowing us a way to be able to survive and to follow our passion of being able to tend the land and farm you know, farm and, and be vegetable growers. Look, we're just dirt farmers. We're, <laughs> we're, we're not celebrities. We don't, that is the, the furthest thing from our minds. But it has been just an unbelievable 30 years. The, the chefs that I've gotten to meet, the people I've gotten to meet, the opportunities to go on Food Network and, and be an, uh, an Iron Chef judge and some of the other opportunities. Um, the first time I went on Iron Chef as a judge, I I just felt like I did terrible, and I knew they would never invite me back. I'm I'm not a food critic. I'm a farmer. I'm not a chef. Uh, I'm a farmer. And, you know, when I was a kid, going to the Brown Derby for a sirloin steak was a big deal for us on Sunday after church. So we didn't really have any culinary background to speak of. Um, but, you know, the, the Food Network folks said, look, we want... We can get food critics here. We just want this to be your interpretation as a farmer. And when they kind of wrapped it up and put it in that parameter, it made it much easier for me, and I really started to enjoy it. And I've gotten to go, oh, I don't know, half a dozen different times. And now I really look forward to going. And and a lot of times the chefs that are on Iron Chef are chefs that we've worked with or we work with. So it's really exciting, um, you know, to see what they do with, with the food. What, what do you guys eat in your kitchen at home? 
where do we eat at home? Well, what do you eat? Yeah, I mean, you kind of have like the, the pick of the land. I'm just curious, like what makes it to your table or if, you know, there's certain certain plants or products at different times of year, everyone is kind of clamoring for, you know, they talk a lot in, in butcher shops about the butcher's cuts. So like, you know, small p- parts of the animal that the butcher would hold back for themselves. I'm just curious in the vegetable world if if there's any of that kind of happening. Well, absolutely, and I, and I am very, very seasonally sensitive. Look at I love asparagus, and I think when it's in season, we ought to have it three times a day and really celebrate asparagus season. But when it's out of season, we should lust for it for 10 more months and wait until that season comes in. And so, you know, one of the questions always asked is, what's your favorite? And, and for me, it's really what's in season, and I think there's such a natural rhythm to what we should eat. And, you know, the, the wonderful things coming out of the root cellar right now, the celery root, the rutabaga, the parsnips, the, the, all the different old heirloom varieties of beets and the heirloom carrots. And I think that if we eat seasonally, it's really much healthier for our bodies. And then as the, the ramps come into season and the asparagus, you just you look forward to what's really coming. And it helps, I think, create a natural menu for what you should be consuming. Now, I know at the Chef's Garden, you guys have been kind of building your business and the relationships around that for a couple, you know, quite a few decades at this point. And I'm I'm curious, you know, two things. One, I mean, what do you see as the future for the Chef's Garden? And two, you know, thinking in particular about the next generation of farmers in the U.S., you know, folks who are, are looking for access to land and looking at developing business models, if if you see yourself in, a, in an education or leadership role for that upcoming generation of, of farmers? Well, we're very, very excited. You know, several years ago, farmers actually fell off of the census report. Um, it used to be a classification that you could check um, that as a, a livelihood, and we fell under the category of other a few years ago and really reached a historic low. You know, 50 years ago, Fifty percent of the population was directly or indirectly involved in agriculture, and today I believe it's under like one percent. I I would like to think that it has bottomed out and starting to move back up. So it's very exciting to see the interest, and you know I think what's really driving it is the awareness of where our food sources are coming from. And I would encourage people to get to the farmers markets, develop relationships with farmers. Uh, absolutely, I do see us in an educational um, mode. Um, one of the most exciting things for us right now is a not-for-profit division of the farm that we have called Veggie U. And with the help of many chefs, many teachers, doctors, nutritionists, put a five-week curriculum together, and we actually in some ways send the farm to the children, and it goes right in schools. We've been in over 3,000 schools across the country. It's called VeggieU.org. And they get seeds, they get soil, they get compost, they get a worm farm, they get a grow light, they get a curriculum that weaves the science, math, and health in. They learn about photosynthesis. It's a really cool, hands-on program that empowers children to know they have choices in food. And so that's probably one of the most exciting educational components of the farm uh, for us right now is the Veggie U program. Well, Farmer Jones, we are out of time, but thank you so oh, much. No. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just have to have an excuse to get you back and, and maybe have you in studio next time you're, you're out here in New York. 
Sounds great. Erin, thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. So if you want to learn more about the work of uh, Farmer Jones and his team at the Chef's Garden, you can find them at www.chefs-garden.com or follow them on Twitter. They're The Chef's Garden on Twitter. Um, and definitely check out VeggieU.org if you're interested in bringing a little piece of the garden to a school or education institution near you. Uh, as always, this and all 30 of our live weekly shows are available as a free download through iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like what you hear, and we hope that you do, we hope you'll become a member by visiting www.heritageradionetwork.org and clicking the donate link. Stay tuned. Uh, coming up next, we've got the Grand YC Farmers Market Report. And then make sure to tune in next Thursday for another episode of the Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. Oh man, how many more days of winter do we have? <laughs> Liz, thanks for joining us today on another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. I'm so curious to hear uh, a little bit more about honey that we'll be chatting with today. So let's just jump right in. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, Aaron, I know it's like the countdown, right? And <laughs> it's February is really the time when, or the end of February, beginning of March is really when we start thinking about the next season. So um, a lot of that in our office typically revolves around hiring because we hire about 30 people in April to run our markets for the whole summer. And yesterday, our Union Square operations manager, Davey Hughes, was making a case for bringing back some staff even earlier than April, sometime in March, saying, the plants and the flowers are coming back. I've spoken to the farmers. The markets are filling up. And so all I'm sitting there thinking in the meeting is like, spring, it's right around the corner. So um, those flower-filled days right around the corner and summer veg and fruit coming in soon after, I'm, of course, thinking about honey and bee products. And um, since I know those little bees are out there working their tails off to pollinate our farmers' crops. Cool. So, um, you know, I know that there's a bunch of different honey producers at the market. Who should we be looking out for? Yeah, I wanted to um, highlight my old friend, beekeeper Joel Close. He's from Nature's Way Farm. Joel and his son Brian keep their bees up in the Finger Lakes region of New York, and they sell at Grand Army, McCarran Park, Inwood, Jackson Heights, and then probably four or five more markets um, that open for the, just the summer. So, so they're all over the city for us. Nice. And, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, to be at so many markets, they've got to be producing a fair amount of honey. What is what does their operation look like? Yeah, they have a really intensive hive management. It's Joel and Brian doing most of the work out there um, and a really good breeding program. So they're able to select bees, or which are superior foragers, and through their two-queen management system, which sounds so nice and fancy to me, I almost try to get Jean to call our office the two-queen management <laughs> system. 
<laughs> I really like that. Um, their hives stay consistently strong in numbers, and I know a lot of people out there hear about colony collapse disorder. I'm definitely no expert in that, but we have a lot of beekeepers um, at the market who can answer any questions, especially Joel, but because of his, the way he manages his farm and his beekeeping operation, he's been able to maintain really good numbers and keep his um, keep his bee colonies strong, so... Nice. Yeah. Um, and so because of the prolific floral varieties that bloom in the Finger Lakes region and the climate up there with the lake effect, they, they're able to um, keep their bees in different areas, fields, forests, orchards. Um, farmers in the region hire them to come and pollinate their crops. Uh, their honey is then available in tons of distinctive colors and flavors including orange blossom because they keep their bees in South Carolina for the winter, and then light wildflower, forest flower, buckwheat, and clover. So um, so a lot of different varieties there depending on what you're looking for, a really strong honey or a really light honey. Uh, and then Joel and Brian also keep other beekeepers in business by helping buy surplus products, selling supplies, selling nuts, which is a small honey colony to beginning beekeepers, they host beekeeping classes, provide monthly tips and links and resources. So they're really helping keep bee numbers alive and strong. Oh, nice. That's such a great resource. I mean, I remember a few years ago bringing down a starter hive um, that, that spent a trip, you know, about a two-hour trip underneath my legs in the middle of a, <laughs> a, a cab and a truck for for a local Brooklyn farmer to, to get going on their bee production. Well, you know, honey, obviously great to just eat with a spoon out of the jar, but what are some other kind of applications that you might recommend? Well, Joel really opened my eyes to a lot when I was on the phone with him, um, and he had a really good story of starting the Greenpoint McCarran Park Green Market in 1999 and having a Polish woman ask him to bring in propolis, which they then, which he sold to them in a solid form, and then they soaked it in vodka to make a tincture that would quell sore throats and used to prevent colds, and they would bring him samples of it. And he said it worked wonders on his sore throats, and he now uses it as preventative. Um, salicin, which is a chemical in, similar in chemical makeup to aspirin, exists in willow and poplar barks of trees that the bees are pollinating, so their propolis contains it. So, um, so that's like a, a, a really nice use of honey. Um, also, this was a very surprising story. They've also requested to br- for him to bring in dead bees, which the Polish and Russian women wanted to use to crush and make tea, um, claiming that the body reacts to the bee venom and then boosts your immune system. But he said he never felt very comfortable with the idea of transporting distributing dead bees, <laughs> so he never went that route. But I mean, I, I had never heard of anything like that, so it was very interesting. Um, but yeah, especially with spring at our doorstep, Joel wanted me to remind everyone all those beautiful blooms in the city come major allergies. Um, so starting a morning regimen now of a teaspoon of wildflower honey to help build resistance, really important and helpful, um, especially before the flowers and trees are in full force. So aside from that, honey can be used in many ways, especially as a replacement for refined sugar, sweetening salad dressing, tea and coffee, marinades for meat dishes, and a favorite of my colleague, Heather Ruby, um, spreading uh, with some butter on a warm buttermilk biscuit. Delicious. Um, I should probably note that Joel's probably referring to, you know, eating a, a regionally produced honey to, to do the allergy prevention, just because I think that's, that's where you're going to get those impacts. Yeah, that's the key. Whatever you have allergies to is what's grown in the region. That's what the bees are going to help you build up immunity to. Nice. And then we'll probably be on the lookout for mixologists across the city to making, you know, dead bee-infused cocktails here, <laughs> we'll here in the future. That might be the next food trend. I never know. <laughs> um, in the meantime, you guys have some great events coming up. Why don't you give us the lowdown? 
Okay, great. Yeah, the um, CUNY and Hunter College, part of CUNY, has started a New York City Food Policy Center, and they're kicking that off with a food policy for breakfast seminar, because who doesn't want to have some food policy for breakfast? Um, They're starting that next Wednesday at uh, 8.30 to 10 a.m. Michael Hurwitz, uh, the Green Market Director, is going to speak on a panel about New York City's food supply and how we, you know, how we support during emergency emergencies like Sandy. I mean, we kind of motivated really quickly and did donate a bag at market and all this stuff, but I think that there was a lot to learn from from the um, storm and the reaction afterwards and how we got food distributed around the city. So it should be a really interesting panel. Um, and seeing Michael on a panel is always great, considering I work with him all day. I always learn something. Um, and then also our wholesale market, which we run in Hunts Point in the Bronx, is moving to a new location still in Hunts Point. All the information is on our website. But we're, um, we're opening back up March 15th and have tons of flowers and plants for sale. So anything from 12-inch plots or pots, sorry, to entire flats, um, all locally grown, all wholesale costs. Um, and anyone, home gardeners, organizations, businesses alike, are welcome to come and purchase plants and flowers at wholesale costs. So it's grownyc.org slash wholesale is all information about that market. Awesome. Liz, thanks for a great update. I'm going to go get some honey and maybe have a little tea. I think that's going to cure what ails me today. Um, for folks who want to find out more about what's happening, you can visit them at www.grownyc.org for information on the farmers, markets, volunteer opportunities. Definitely check them out. Also follow them on Twitter, Facebook, and all the social media platforms that your heart desires. Uh, and then be sure to put a spot in your schedule to tune in next week for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.